Hello, welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 38, The Conquest of Mexico, part 2. To the natives, these marvels augured their death and ruin, signifying that the end of the world was coming, and that other peoples would be created to inhabit the earth. They were so frightened and grief-stricken that they could form no judgment about these things, so new and strange and never before seen or reported. Miguel Leon Portilla, The Broken Spears I began last episode by talking about the legacy of the conquest of Mexico, and I want to start today's one by expanding on this from a slightly different angle. I spoke last time about Moctezuma's impressive military record, and that of the Aztec in general. I also mentioned in the episodes about the Aztec just how impressive their civilization was, and how Spanish accounts of Tenochtitlan describe the city as more spectacular than any of their cities back home. So was the Spanish victory inevitable? Where does the conquest sit in the wider story of history? Well, given the history that will follow, the future Spanish conquests right through to the rise of Europe's future imperial domination of the whole world, it's easy to see this as the first major act in a larger story. European powers will in the coming centuries come to rule the whole of the Americas, Africa, Asia and Oceania. In the light of this future history, if such a phrase makes sense, surely the Spanish were always going to conquer Mexico. Plenty of other civilizations, just as powerful as the Aztec, would also succumb to the Europeans, including the Inca in Latin America, but also the many kingdoms of India with their great and powerful civilization. To give another example, these would of course be conquered by the British later. That, in the case of the Aztec and the Inca, and indeed the British in India, this was done by small numbers of men in foreign territory, is hard to ignore. Now, we will examine this further later in the story. For example, that small bands of Spaniards in Mexico was, of course, augmented by large numbers of local allies. But the weight of what did end up happening subsequently is hard to ignore. Now this is difficult territory, there's no denying history, but when you start to take this route, it starts to feel dangerously close to suggesting some kind of inherent superiority of the Europeans. I promise that I'm the last person who wants to suggest this. This topic came up on my recent trip to India. One evening we were sitting around in the hostel, there was a group of us, half Indian, half foreign. We had been discussing all the great achievements of the Indian civilization, and then the conversation turned to the British period, and how the British managed to conquer it all. None of us could come up with a real satisfactory answer as to how it happened and why. In fact, the reasons for European success in the last 500 years or so have not been fully agreed upon by historians in general. There have been quite a few suggestions, and perhaps it was a combination of these. It could have been a case that the European empires were just in the right place at the right time. It could have all been a question of luck. While the Spaniards brought some diseases back with them, 
syphilis, for example, it just so happened that the diseases they had were much more deadly and would have severely disrupted the defence of the American peoples. Other people put it down to geography. They argue that Europe offered the perfect location for farming and that its rivers and seas encouraged the development of boats. Geography also helped in that although it was not in Europe, but the Middle East at the first steps of civilization were taken, agriculture and cities, etc., Europe's proximity allowed these ideas to spread there relatively early. Perhaps it was due to the fact that there were so many different ethnic and cultural groups in Europe, forcing them to compete with each other and to seek clever new ways of outdoing each other. Another line of thinking argues that European powers were given the space to ascend by the stagnation of the East. The Islamic world had until roughly the time that Europe started building its empires been more powerful, more technologically advanced and often more united than Europe. If they had remained so, then perhaps Europe would not have been able to achieve what it did. Once the process of empire building had begun, it could have been that there was a snowball effect. The gains already made helped provide the resources to make more. As I said, there are no firm answers, and there are plenty more theories. Perhaps I'll do some more reading and devote an episode to this at some point in the future. It's a big subject, too big to deal with properly here, but it's an interesting thing to think about, especially as for the foreseeable future this podcast is going to involve a lot of Spanish and Portuguese conquering. In the specific case of the Aztec, though, one explanation for why things went the way they did comes in the form of the Aztec belief system, and to be precise, a series of strange events that occurred in the lead-up to the Spanish arrival. Moctezuma was, before the Spanish arrival, an excellent commander, with lots of military success. But, as we shall see, against the Spanish he performed very poorly. These events, or perhaps the Aztec understanding of them, they could explain his ineffectiveness, and perhaps the conquest as a whole. We know about these omens, as they're commonly called, thanks to the Aztec codices. My job of going through these has been made immeasurably easier by the work of Mexican anthropologist and historian Miguel Leon Portilla. He has written a book entitled The Broken Spears, which collates the whole conquest into an easy-to-understand chronological narrative told from the perspective of the Aztec and drawing upon these codices. It was from that book which the quote I opened with came from. His work outlines the nature of the omens, and in which order they happened. It began a full ten years before the Spanish appeared, with a column of flame which seemed to rise up, out from the horizon, high up into the sky. It would appear each night at midnight, and continue to shoot out sparks and flashes until day broke and the light of the sun blocked it out. It was said to have been there for a year, and during this time many sacrifices were made to try and appease whichever god was making it happen. 
It was so unlike anything the Aztec had ever seen that even the highest priests were unsure of how to interpret it. When exactly the following omens appeared, in the intervening years before the Spaniards arrived, is unclear, but they all contributed to the sense that something supernatural was going on. Next, the great temple of Huitzilpochtli caught fire for no obvious reason, and the flames seemed to be impervious to water as they tried to put it out. It was completely destroyed. Another temple also burnt to the ground when it was hit by lightning. Apparently, there was no flash or thunder accompanying the lightning bolt. Next, it was comets crossing the sky in groups of threes, so bright that they were visible during the day. After this, the lake which surrounded Tenochtitlan started to froth and form great waves which came ashore and destroyed many of the city's houses. People then started to hear the voice of a woman at night crying out in distress about lost sons and trying to find somewhere to hide them. The seventh omen was perhaps the most bizarre so far. Fishermen, pulling up their nets from the lake, discovered that they had caught a strange black feathered bird. On its head, not attached to it but part of the head itself, was a strange mirror-like object in which could be seen the constellations of Taurus and Gemini. The bird was taken to Moctezuma, and when he looked into the mirror, he saw visions of battle with strange-looking men accompanied by deer-like creatures. When he called his priests to ask what it meant, the bird disappeared into thin air, and they were unable to interpret it. The eighth and final omen was the appearance of strange, deformed, two-headed men on the streets of Tenochtitlan. When Moctezuma went out to see them for himself, they suddenly vanished, just as the bird had done. Now to Western ears, these omens sound fanciful. Our worldview is built on the establishment of scientific fact, on scepticism of the supernatural, and logical explanations. I suspect that most, if not all, listening to this will view these events as impossibilities. The point, however, is not whether they happened or could happen. It's whether, if the Aztecs believed in them, as the Codex suggests that they did, if this affected how they responded to the Spanish, and if it can explain the course of history. Could it be that Moctezuma approached the Spaniards from a place of fear, thanks to these events, rather than with the confidence you would expect from a great emperor confronted by a small band of strangers? Could he have perhaps interpreted them as the ninth omen in the series? Perhaps he expected them to disappear at any moment, like the bird and the two-headed men before them. I've already spent enough of this episode talking about theoretical matters, so I won't do it any more here. In two episodes' time we will come back to this, and look further at how non-Western belief systems can alter how people behave, how they interpret events, and therefore the course of history. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. For now, though, let's get back to the story. And back to Hernan Cortez, just launched from Cuba and on his way to Mexico. Cortez and his fleet were sailing southwest towards the Yucatan Peninsula. It was a short hop across the Caribbean to get there, but he would have been keeping one eye on his rear, looking for signs of Velasquez's men coming to apprehend him for leaving without permission and to stop him from making a name for himself. He must now have been feeling the pressure. There was no going back and he had to succeed. Not only had he invested his own fortune in the success of the trip, but now he faced legal repercussions on his return. Velasquez already had grounds to find him and arrest him, and while he was away, he had no real way of politicking or spinning his side of the story to the king or anyone else of influence. Velasquez could give whatever version of events he liked, not that he really needed to embellish, and he could make any other moves he chose. The only way for Cortes to get out of this was to succeed so spectacularly that the beginnings of the trip were eclipsed. It really was all or nothing. Success would bring him riches, fame and position, and new land for the Spanish Empire would help the king overlook any transgressions. Luckily for him, Cortes thrived under pressure. And this was exactly what he planned to do. After some mild bad weather, they made landfall on the island of Cozumel, just as de Grijalva had before them. Cortez's ship was the last to arrive, and by the time he came ashore, he found that the local inhabitants had completely abandoned their settlement. They had not done this of their own accord, however. Cortez soon discovered that his most trusted subordinate, de Alvarado, had decided to raid the village as soon as he had arrived. He'd stolen a small amount of gold and some turkeys, and taken two prisoners. Now it was not that Cortes was averse to some raiding, but he was not happy that de Alvarado had taken the initiative in this way. De Alvarado was famously hot-headed, brave and talented, but despite his ability, Cortes couldn't have him running around raiding whenever the feeling took him. This was a delicate mission, and everyone needed to be working in sync to make it a success. Sure, there would be times when raiding and conquering would be the most effective course of action, but there could also be times where it made more tactical sense to cultivate good relations with certain peoples. They could be used as allies in battle, or they could help out if the Spaniards started to run low on provisions. They could also provide information. Having just arrived, and unsure where he wanted to build his colony, Cortes couldn't say yet which category these people fell into, but de Alvarado had taken it upon himself to make the decision for him. Cortes was not happy, and he let de Alvarado know. He ordered everything returned, and gave gifts to the prisoners before releasing them. 
He had with him a Mayan, who had been captured on one of the previous expeditions, and who had been taught Spanish. His name was Melchior, and he was to be their translator. Through Melchior, Cortes told the prisoners that they meant no harm, and that they would like to speak to the local caciques and establish good relations. The next day the villagers returned, and the two peoples traded. They became friendly towards each other, and Cortes spent a week or so scouting the island and learning as much as he could about his surroundings and the local people. There was one tense moment when Cortes discovered that human sacrifice took place in the local temple, and he took it upon himself to try and end this practice and make Christians of the population. He gave a sermon, again through Melchior, although, having only been exposed to Spanish for a couple of years, Melchior was probably unable to understand and relay the complex theological concepts properly. Cortes then ordered his men to smash the local figurines and statues of the deities, which can't have gone down well, but as he had so many men with him, the Maya could do little to stop them. Afterwards, he held a mass and put up a statue of the Virgin Mary. Besides getting their bearings and trying to convert the population, there was another reason for Cortes to stay on Cozumel. The locals had told him of two men living on the mainland, who had the Spaniards' pale skin and beards. This was obviously an intriguing story, and Cortes sent some men there to see if they could be located. His men returned, having seen no sign of them, however, and so they decided to set off again and follow the coastline northwards. It was to be a false start, as one of the ships had begun to leak, so they quickly returned to make repairs. This turn of events meant that the mystery of the pale and bearded men was solved. One day, after the Spaniards had finished holding a Sunday mass, a canoe was spotted, coming towards the island from the mainland. Aboard were six men, wearing only pieces of cloth around their waists. At first glance they were all Maya, looking just like the people of Cozumel. Suddenly, though, one of them called out in Spanish, and on closer inspection they saw that he did indeed have pale skin, although it had been darkened by years in the tropical sun. His name was Jerónimo de Aguila, and he was a Spaniard. De Aguila had been a priest, and eight years ago the ship he had been on had gone down off the coast of Jamaica. He had been among twenty survivors, and miraculously ten of them managed to stay alive in a small rowing boat as the tide swept them all the way to the Yucatan. On arrival, however, half-starved and exhausted, they had been rounded up by the local cacique and imprisoned. Their most senior member was sacrificed almost immediately, along with four others, leaving just five Spaniards alive. Knowing that nothing good was coming their way, they managed to escape and flee the village. They crossed into the territory of another Maya group, and when they were found, they were enslaved. Not great, but better than their fate had looked before. Over the years, all had died through overwork or disease, except for De Aguila and another man 
named Gonzalo Guerrero. The Aguila had eventually earned a degree of goodwill by doing as instructed by his masters and learning the local language. By the time that Cortez's men had turned up to investigate the reports of white men, he was free enough for the Maya he lived with to help him find his way back to his countrymen. I can only imagine how much of a relief it must have been arriving on Cozumel and seeing the Spaniards. While he was now safe, he would not be going home just yet, however. Cortes could not return to Spanish territory to drop him off, and besides, he was an extremely useful asset. Melchior could serve as a reasonable translator, but Aguila was now fluent in both Spanish and the local Maya language, although apparently, after so long away, it took him a few days to remember how to speak Spanish like a Spaniard again. He knew the customs and could explain them in a way that the Spanish could understand, and all this meant that it looked like he would have an important role in the expedition before he could go home. But what of the other man, Gonzalo Guerrero? Well, if Daguila's story is an exciting tale, Guerrero's was even better. He had been enslaved as well, but he had quickly impressed the locals. He must have been a big man and able to fight because he was soon released and became one of their warriors. He helped them to fight against their neighbours. He must have also had a good understanding of tactics because it seemed he became a general of sorts. He had soon risen from being a slave to having a status above that of most of his new countrymen. He had married the daughter of a local cacique and had three children with her. The Aguila described him as covered in Maya tattoos, with indigenous piercings, including a jade plate in his bottom lip. While Daguila was delighted to be going home, when he sought out Guerrero to tell him the good news, Guerrero chose not to come with him. He would live out the rest of his days amongst the Maya. Now that is probably the last that was heard of him by the Spanish, but some sources say that later he may have actively fought against them as they colonised the Mayan lands. According to one of the governors of what is now Honduras, over a decade later, after a battle against a local cacique, a tattooed Spaniard's body was found amongst the dead. Whether this is true or not, though, is unknown. What we do know is that while Guerrero stayed where he was, the Spanish continued northwards, edging closer and closer to the Aztec Empire. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at historylatinam. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, 
If you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.